Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, this is your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio and I love all things tech. And it is Friday. That means it's time for a classic episode. This episode originally published on March 5th, 2014. It is titled The History of Handheld Gaming Part 2. And if Part 2 is throwing you for a loop, listen to last Friday's classic episode, because that is, surprise, surprise, Part 1. So let's listen in on this classic episode. The two video game systems that we're about to talk about, because they were essentially the same thing, but branded under two different names, uh, they did not make the same impact on the market that the Game Gear did. They did get some popularity in Europe and South America, not in North America, as far as I can tell. But these two systems, which, again, were pretty much the same thing, were branded the Mega Duck and Cougar Boy. Those sound like the worst superheroes ever. Mega Duck and Cougar Boy (laughs) fighting crime since 1993. (laughs) Yeah, again, they're they're cartridge-based handheld uh-huh. video game systems nothing nothing particularly 
notable about them other than the fact that I thought their names were adorable. Yeah, yeah. If, if, if you haven't heard of them, um, you're in pretty good company, especially here in North America. I don't think they ever came to yeah, this market. They were mostly so. in um, Europe and South America, yep, actually. Yep, yep. Brazil uh, actually produced some, thus Cougar Boy. But uh, yeah, so Megaduck, apparently very popular in the Netherlands and Germany. By the way, if any of you own any of the game systems, particularly the uh, the more obscure ones that we're talking about, I welcome you to share a picture of oh, you yeah. holding the handheld game system and share it on our Facebook wall, and we will uh, totally comment on those. Yeah, or or if you if you give us permission to, we will we will push it along to our to our other yeah, like the Tumblers and, and the Twitters yeah, and yeah. The things. Yeah, because uh, you know, I I uh, have owned a couple of handheld gaming systems. Back in the day, but I never got my hands on a Mega Duck or a Cougar Boy. I I never owned a handheld. Huh. Wow. Learning something new about Lauren here. Actually, the only one besides the the you know I mentioned in, that I had a uh, a football or a football two from Mattel Electronics. At least I think I did. I know I played one. I assume that I owned it. That was back when I was a little kid. Uh, the only one that I can remember owning. And it wasn't that long ago when I got it. It was a Game Boy Advance. And we'll talk about that in this episode a little bit later. Um, moving on to 1995, that is when Sega released the Nomad, which yeah. was a handheld version of the Genesis. Right. So the fact that it could actually play Genesis games meant that it had a big leg up over the competition because it already had an established library to pull from. Oh, sure. Uh, however, the, the, the form factor of those game cartridges meant that this thing was pretty huge. Yeah, it was really Really bulky, not easy for it. Like it was called a handheld, but sort of in the same way that early laptops were called laptop computers. But if you were to actually put it on your lap, you might crush your legs. Kind of similar to that. Also, um, from what I understand, you you could only play for a very short while before it drained all the batteries and you had to replace them. So, uh, in fact, so much so that I remember that for some of these devices, including this one, one of the peripherals that was uh, that was launched shortly after the system debuted would be little AC adapters for a car. Oh, right. <laughs> like a car adapter so that you could actually play in the car without the batteries dying after half an hour. So not terribly popular, uh, partly also because Sega had this issue about releasing a whole bunch of different video game consoles within a relatively short amount of time. And those consoles were mostly incompatible with each other. Uh, yeah, within like seven years, they had released at least three. And, and that's... Yeah, it's a lot. Cutting it, down on your own market is yeah. never really the best idea. Yeah, it ended up saturating the market quite a bit, and so it, that also hurt them in the long run. Uh, 1997. This is an interesting one. It's the Game.com was the um, name of it. Right, by Tiger Electronics. And this was a, a handheld device, and remember, this is 1997, that had Internet connectivity yes, built in. Specifically, you could do things like check your email or read Web pages in text. Uh, yeah, you couldn't play games online. No. Uh, it, the, the, the internet functions were more for, it was also kind of this dual function PDA sort of thing because PDAs were so big in 1997. Yeah, personal digital assistance for those who don't remember. Right. Yeah, so this is, uh, that was what we called smartphones before there were phones in them. <laughs> uh, like many other PDAs of the time, it had a monochrome screen. Yep. Whereas everything else coming out at this point had a color screen, so that, that injured it definitely yeah, in the marketplace. Definitely, definitely. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was kind of, uh, still kind of a cool idea, but apparently the games were also not very good, or some people would say 
incredibly bad. <laughs> and so uh, uh, it, it did have a touch screen, which which was pretty innovative for, yeah. for the time for games. Anyway, yeah. again, PDAs frequently had them. Right. But gaming systems did not. So this is, you know, marking two things that would become popular in future game systems, the touch screen and the Internet connectivity. So it was a little ahead of its time. It was it was an ambitious product. Uh, ultimately was a not successful. A huge failure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> something that was not a failure. Uh, uh, one year later in 1998, uh, and, and this was this was a decade after their last big one, Nintendo released the Game Boy Color, and that was the the, the first real update to the Game Boy. Yeah. I mean, there had been that those few others that we talked about in Where the, the form factor first had changed a little. But, uh-huh. but the, the guts of the Game Boy had remained largely the same since it had debuted. There had not been a major overhaul apart from some of the aesthetics of the actual case itself. Uh, this is where we finally get to a, br- a brand new kind of technology where we get color screens on Game Boys. Uh, so no more monochromatic Tetris, unless you're actually playing an old Game Boy cartridge. Because one of the nice things about it was that it was backwards compatible. Right. So if you bought a Game Boy Color, you didn't have to worry about... Well, now I have to. Now all these games are useless, yeah. and I have to have two devices with me if I want to. Nope, you can play anything you want. Yeah, Nintendo was really good about being backwards compatible with a few of its different uh, consoles. Not all of them, but so much enough so that whenever you had a console come out, whether it was handheld or otherwise, that was not backwards compatible, people got upset because oh, they they got used to it. So, uh, but this one definitely in that philosophy did not have a backlit screen just like the original Game Boy. So, again, that meant that the battery consumption was uh, modest. Sure. So sure. It, it wouldn't die within half an hour, unlike the uh, Sega Nomad. So, uh, And then also that same year in 1998, another company called Neo Geo released the Neo Geo Pocket in Japan, which was a monochromatic handheld video game system. It didn't do very well, but in 1999, they released the Neo Geo Pocket Color, or NGPC, which ended up being a uh, device that the company would sell around the world. It wasn't just a Japanese product. Uh, yeah, it was a pretty good competitor to to the Game Boy Color. Yeah, it was less expensive than the Nintendo device. Uh, it was also power efficient, just like the Game Boy Color was. But ultimately, Nintendo's biggest advantage was, again, that amazing library of games. Neo Geo had some great games, but, but Nintendo had a ton of them. Uh, yeah, yeah, and, and Neo Geo's strength and development was was certainly in the console market at the time. Yeah, so that moves us up to 1999. That's when uh, Bandai, which was really known for those uh, handheld, hard-coded LCD-based games, the ones that would be like, you know, uh, uh, licensed after a particular product or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, it was really known for those, the ones that weren't any kind of cartridge-based games, that's when they released the Wonder Swan, which was a monochromatic gaming device, and it was designed by... By Gunpei Yokoi. Yeah, the same guy who designed the Game Boy, the original Game Boy. So this was a notable entry in that it was designed by one of the, the most successful, most influential designers of the handheld gaming industry. Uh, right, and it was also the exclusive mobile platform at the time for the Final Fantasy series, yeah. which was really huge. I mean, mostly in Japan. Yeah, in fact, the, this game console never really got popular anywhere other than Japan. It was never sold in the United States. Uh, even after they updated it, they updated it a couple times. They had the Wonder Swan Color, and then by night, by 2002, rather, they came out with the Swan Crystal. Uh, I've seen pictures of them. 
uh, I don't know how you were going to play games on these. He's like, there was one that I, it looked like it had two directional pads on the same side of the game console. It was another one of those where it had the screen in the middle and the controls are on either side. But one side had a directional pad laid out on top of another directional pad, or at least that's what it looked like to me. The picture was not terribly great quality, and I've never seen one of these in person. If anyone has has one, send us a picture. Yeah, or send us one. You know, <laughs> if you've got an extra one, you can just send us one. That's fine. Uh, send sure. us some games, too, because otherwise it's just not going to, I mean, it'll be pretty to look at. But uh, yeah, so Wait, anyway. You can't, you can't program your own cartridge games for? Uh, I don't have that kind of spare time. 1999 Do you consoles? really want to see a game that I have programmed? I, it'll, it'll just be made entirely of puns. It'll I do not want to see that at Renaissance all. Renaissance Festival. The game! That'd be what it would be. Uh, at any rate, a brief note, uh, from the year 2000, that is, uh, we started seeing a lot of retro nostalgia for, for early games, I think, uh, yeah. around this time that, yep. that has been pervasive. I mean, not that, not that nerds will, have never not talked about things that they're really excited about from 20 years ago. Right. But um, but this is the year that Mattel re-released its late 70s games, football and baseball. And which, you know, it makes sense because the, the kids who got these as toys when they were kids um, have okay. now grown up and are now able to purchase stuff on their own. Speaking of that, in the year 2000, that that is when Nintendo came out with the Game Boy Advance, which was its next big update to the Game Boy line. Yeah, they actually launched it in 2001. They had been developing it for a while, and the uh, this one ended up having a color screen. It had uh, had uh, shoulder um, buttons as well as the regular buttons that you had on the games, so that increased the things you could do with it. Uh, I owned one of these. At any rate, um, it was backwards compatible with Game Boy and Game Boy Color cartridges, so that gave it a lot of utility. Mm-hmm. But you know, the, anything that was a Game Boy Advanced game was way more uh, uh, sophisticated, yeah, and pretty. <laughs> exactly, you could you could do more stuff, um, and it had about the same amount of. Uh, a uh, p- firepower, you could say, as one of their former consoles. Uh, right, the SNES, the Super Nintendo yep. Entertainment System, which had debuted like like a decade earlier, and and I find it really impressive that miniaturization had had occurred to the point where in only ten years you were able to pack this huge bulky SNES into capability a handheld. into a handheld. Yeah, and uh, they would also update this line multiple times. Uh, so in 2003, Nintendo released a clamshell version of the Game Boy Advance. And then uh, 2005, they released the Game Boy Advance Micro, which was a, a much smaller version of it. Because, yeah, that first one that came out was a bit a bit clunky. Uh, that's the, the first version is the one that I have, by the way. I don't have the, the Micro or the clamshell version. They also would even go on to offer a wireless adapter in 2004. So instead of using cables to connect your Game Boy Advance with someone else's machine, if you both had this wireless adapter, you could play games over wireless. Um and so, uh, yeah, very popular. Uh, also gave you some connectivity with the Nintendo GameCube. So if you owned both the GameCube and a Game Boy Advance, and you owned the the compatible titles, you could have access to additional co- content on both. Uh, right, right. You, you would hook it up by by a special cable, and and 
not that many games had this capacity, right. but, but you could you could access a little bit of, of simultaneous content. Yeah, you could you could actually use your Game Boy Advance as a controller. Right, right. And it would display extra information inside the Game Boy Advance's uh, screen. So this kind of it predates and it and it foreshadows the Nintendo Wii U, which wouldn't come out for another decade. Yeah. So the Wii U, I mean, we you know it's got that tablet based controller where you can get extra stuff on it. That you know that's obviously not a new idea. Nintendo had been playing with that idea for a while. Uh, also in 2001, uh, over in Korea, there was a, a company called Game Park that released the GP32 handheld gaming console. Full color screen, typical kind of handheld, but it was a little bit different from the previous consoles we had seen. Uh, yeah, this one was was really interesting because games were not stored on cartridges. They they used little flashcards. Yeah, smart media flashcards, which meant that anyone could develop a game for this and then store it. As long as you knew how to program for this device, you could build a game for it or an application for it and store it on a smart media card and use it on the system. Because, you know, cartridges... That's hard to program for. You're t- talking about actual physical circuits you have to Media, build. Media, right, right. Yeah, this is it's all... It's much more expensive. Um, so this was much easier to code for. It was a great boon to, to independent developers who were interested in getting into it. Unfortunately, it also made things really easy to pirate. Yeah, which made a lot of the uh, the established game companies say, you know, we're not going to develop for this because we don't want to have our stuff stolen everywhere. It doesn't make any sense for us to pour a lot of money into development, marketing, sales, all that kind of stuff only to see a handful of games go out before they're all pirated. So it uh, didn't get a lot of support from the industry, but it was one of those things that really took off in the independent circle and the, the, the emulator circle, the people who wanted to create uh, emulators that could play games based on other systems, and then you would have one handled console that could do practically anything. Uh, 2003, here's where we have one of our big flop stories. One of my favorites, actually. I remember when this came out. The Nokia. <laughs> uh, yeah, the, the, the N-Gage. Yeah. So um, N-Gage, also sometimes called the taco, because uh, it was vaguely taco-shaped. It's kind of taco-shaped. And here's the crazy thing. Did you ever see anyone having to make a call on one of these things? I never saw anyone use one, period. Okay, so the, the speaker and the receiver on it, if you think of a taco, like a taco shell... The fold of the taco shell, like a hard, crispy taco. Gosh, I want tacos now. But uh, if you think of the fold of the shell, the the speaker and the receiver were on the outside of that fold. Oh. So, so you actually so, so you you're had the, holding yeah, like a like a taco out to the side of your face. Yes, that's it pretty did, awkward. It didn't sit flat against your face. The edge was against your face, so the, the it was enormous. Okay, okay. So this was clever in in a way. The concept was clever yeah. in the in the Nokia was a, a really dominant force in the cell phone business at the time, and they were trying to make a, a cell phone that was also a handheld gaming system and. And hey, we we have some things that are kind of like that today. Yeah, yeah. At the time, that was before the smartphone revolution had really taken off. So this was a a really uh, brand new kind of innovative, innovative idea. Oh sure, sure. Unfortunately, it was a terrible phone and a terrible gaming system. Yeah, it, it really was awful at both things it was supposed to do, and so it did not get very far. It, there was uh, a sequel to the Engage, which was more about. Uh, uh, kind of a, a a game system, like a game library that you could download to Nokia-based phones. Uh, yeah, yeah. It, uh, a couple years later, it would it would release an update to the N-Gage that was 
better than the Engage had been. It was called the QD, Engage yeah. QD, uh, but it still flopped. And um, and right, and then then after that, they would they would release this uh, uh kind of app that was that was sort of an in in phone gaming system. Yeah, it was getting away from that physical form factor that had burned them so badly. Uh huh. But um, but it, it would even abandon that in yeah. another in another few years as as app stores became things. They realized that having a, a specific gaming app wasn't as useful. Yeah. So 2004, this is where we see one of the big influential players get into the space finally. Yeah, Sony. Yeah, with the Where have you been, Sony? <laughs> yeah. They they had been developing the PlayStation Portable or PSP. Uh, they launched it in Japan in December 2004. It didn't get over into the United States and uh, and Europe until the next year. Uh, of course, being Sony at the time, it did not use cartridges or or even flashcards. Right. It went straight for optical discs. Which you're like, what? <laughs> I mean, you know, when you think about it, it's a real challenge to make any kind of portable device that uses optical discs because any kind of oh, jostling, it's so bouncy, right? Yeah. It's gonna. It's gonna, it, yeah. The the, the laser can't read. The laser, of yeah. course, yeah. And and these these are those those little mini optical discs. They look like a little yeah universal media discs, right. UMDs, right? Yeah. In this case, they did a really good job at designing it so that you you know unless you were particularly rough with your PSP uh, or you were you know maybe going down a a dirt road, perhaps you're a good old boy, never meaning no harm. Uh, then you might have some issues, but otherwise, you know, it's pretty smooth. Uh, it had connectivity to the internet. You could connect to other PSPs. You uh, could connect to consoles. Right, right. Um, pretty, pretty good machine. I mean, I, I remember getting the chance to play on them. Again, I didn't own one of these. <laughs> Boy, that's just the story of my life here. I'm like, I'm actually craving some of these now. Uh, I can see why collectors get so passionate about this oh, hobby. Sure. Yeah, we, we looked at a lot of different collections while we were pulling together the information for this podcast. And there are a lot of people out there who have huge collections of handheld gaming devices. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, another cool thing about this because you know because it was a Sony property, um, it you you could watch Sony films on these little mini discs. Yep. Uh, in in the correct aspect ratio. Yeah, sixteen nine aspect ratio. So mm-hmm. it wasn't that four three which the old television sets were. Mm-hmm. Now this is that widescreen format, so you didn't have the little black bars on the top and bottom. It actually would play in full view on the screen. Uh, in the native aspect ratio. It was, it was a really, really smart idea. And it also was kind of, again, they, they, they were predicting how we were going to be using mobile devices to consume media. They were ahead of the game on this one. And it, it did pretty well. You know, it, it still wasn't really catching up to Nintendo's domination of the market. But they they weren't hurting either. Oh, certainly not. Uh, although it did not help their case that 2004 was the same year that Nintendo released their DS. Oh, yes. Another incredibly popular game platform. Now, this was where they would said, you know, that Game Boy that we've been making, it's taken us a long way. And I think it's pretty much gone as far as it can go. We need to take the next step. We need to go uh, a big jump beyond what the Game Boy can do. And that's when they came out with the DS. And the the innovative thing about the DS was something that we talked about from way back in the 80s on that Game & Watch series, the multi-screen series. Oh, uh, uh, right, right. It had it had these two screens, and one of them was uh, was was touch-capable. Yeah, so you could actually have a touch-capable part on uh, that you're, you're playing actively on and a second screen that could be displaying whatever else it needed to. Uh, you could also create games that didn't use the touch screen at all, but used both screens so that you could move your character between one or the other. I mean... The, all, all kinds of different options, yeah. and, and some of the games that came out for this were so innovative. And I think that that's one of the the huge selling points of it. It was that 
independent library, or, or not independent, but just, just individual library of games that you couldn't get anywhere else. Absolutely. And so, you know, the PSP, although it was an incredibly powerful device, and, and, and if you were to look at the specs, it outstripped the, the Nintendo entirely. Oh, by far. But Nintendo sold more than PSP. In fact, uh, it w- according to at least some uh, estimates, it was a two-to-one ratio. Oof. Twice as many Nintendo DSs sold as PSPs. Wow. Uh, it had uh, half the screen resolution. <laughs> or just about. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and like an eighth of the onboard RAM. I, yeah. That was expandable via, via slot, but, yeah. but nonetheless. And, uh, I, yeah, it, it did, it did. I'm not sure how the PSP connected to the internet, but the, I, I know that the DS had Wi-Fi built in, which yep. for 2004 was, was pretty impressive. Yeah, yeah. Wi-Fi was, uh, yeah, having something that could, could connect to Wi-Fi was, uh, a big advantage, although uh, the Wi-Fi was still fairly young in those early days. Like, not everyone had a Wi-Fi router uh, at that time. A lot of people were using, you know, wired connections. I know I was using wired connections for quite some time. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'd... Probably about 2007 or so. Well, on top of that, Nintendo would end up updating the DS line, which is, you know, kind of similar to what they did with the Game Boy. They came out with things like the DS Lite. In this case, it's L-I-T-E. Uh, the DSi, which had a larger display and front and rear cameras, but uh, unfortunately at that point there was no more Game Boy Advance compatibility built into the device. Then eventually the DSi XL, which had the largest screens of that line uh, ever. And so, um, you know, that's a, an interesting development here. We once again see Nintendo really having a stranglehold on the dominance of the the handheld market. But Sony is doing a great job, and, you know, that's their first foray into the handheld gaming. Hey, guys, Jonathan from 2021 now. Technically, it's 2020 when I record this. Man, time is time is hard, right? I'm going to take a quick break uh, and listen to a couple of ads while I, I suss this out. Uh, come with me. Working remotely. Where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There is still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI. 
And Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI and revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. All right, so... Now, Lauren, we talked about we talked about the Engage and how that was a massive flop. Surely, there are no more high-profile, massive flops in the handheld gaming history, are there? Well, you referred to one right before the ad break, so I think I think it's pretty likely. But yes, uh, the Tiger Telematics released the Gizmondo yeah. in 2005, and I can't believe that something with that cool of a name could possibly flop. Yeah, I know with a word with a name like Gizmondo. The sky is the limit. Come on, Gizmondo. Now, it originally was called the Game Track, but that's not nearly as cool as Gizmondo. Gizmondo. So, <laughs> I like that it's coming out like, Fernando. Gizmondo. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, they showed off a prototype of this device back at CES 2004. And this one is an interesting game system to me. Partly because of the operating system it used. Yeah, it was it was Windows based, it, yeah. Windows CE 4.2 to be specific. Right, and so I mean, it was the first handheld gaming device to actually use the Windows platform as its native operating system. And and, and partially due to that, it was also kind of hopping on to the to the very tail end of of that sort of PDA trend yeah. or or maybe that was over but but just people were thinking a lot more about combining different features into devices at this juncture and uh so so it also had a a camera and GPS and texting capabilities yep. SMS and uh and bluetooth bluetooth yep. right mm-hmm. all of those things and so you think wow this thing is packed why didn't it sell incredibly well part of that reason was because uh well there were two different Flavors of Gizmondo that you could purchase. <laughs> uh, the, the first one that came out was four hundred dollars. Yes, that was unsubsidized, four hundred dollars. And when you when I say unsubsidized, you may say, "What do you mean? What was the subsidized version?" Oh, it's because when the that that first one didn't sell basically at all, they came out with an ad supported version. Yeah, for two hundred twenty nine dollars, uh, still didn't do well. And in fact, uh, within eleven months of the product launching, the company goes bankrupt. Yeah, and it was one of one of those devices that initially got a lot of people excited, but the longer the saga went, the more skepticism was involved. And by the time it launched, I think a lot of people felt exactly the opposite of how they had when you know it was just a, a an idea and not an actual product. So uh, both the Gizmondo and the aforementioned Engage are frequently 
found on worst console lists ever, like worst console ever. Yeah, yeah. not just worst handhelds, not like yeah, yeah. No, no, like this is going up against you know those video game consoles that would come out and have three games and then disappear forever. <laughs> uh, these were way up there, and part of it is because they were really expensive. They ended up uh, costing companies, you know, in this case, it cost a company its existence. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. So it's. It's tough, you know. It's one of those things you don't want to see it happen. There's some Schadenfreude there, I'm sure, but you don't want to see that ever happen to anybody. Oh, sure. Uh, although, okay, so so strangely enough, the the next entry on our on our list, which would turn into a, a huge, um, I hate the word disruptor. I think it's overused, but disruptor in the market. Yeah. Um, was was another multi-use device, and yeah. I'm talking about the iPhone introduced by Apple in 2007. Yeah. So when it first came out, it just looked like an amazing device. I don't think any of us had uh, the inkling of how disruptive it was going to be until the app development really started to open up and people began to make games specifically for the iPhone. Uh, sure, sure. I mean, of course, the iPhone is not a handheld gaming device, except for the part where you can use it like one. Yeah, you can have it's a handheld device that can play games. Right. So it's really a multi-use device. But the, the point here is that it had... And it continues to have a really big influence on the handheld gaming industry as a whole, because you've got some consumers out there who say, well, I could buy this single use device, even if it can play multiple games, it's still just a game device. Or I can buy this thing that's also a phone and an interactive map and lets me connect to the Internet and et cetera, et cetera. So it's one of those that has really started to take a big bite out of the mobile gaming world. Now, there are different markets, and some of those markets are more attuned to those gaming devices than to the smartphone world. So it's not that handheld gaming devices are now irrelevant. You know, it's not like they're they're going obsolete, but they're having a tougher time now yeah, that this yeah. has come and, on here. And and we will we will talk more about that um in, in the the very end of our podcast as we get into the current years. But um yeah. But for now, let's let's talk about this is a really interesting one to me. Uh, This came out in 2009 and it was the GamePack GP2X Wiz. Yeah, the GP2X Wiz is one of those open source handheld gaming systems. It was actually made so that people could fiddle around with all the different uh, programming for it and create all sorts of applications and games uh, again, kind of going back. Independently, yeah. It's yeah. designed for independent developers and, and emulators even. Right, right. This is going back to that same one we talked about, the, the Korean game system we talked about right. earlier. This is kind of similar to that. It had a four, 533 megahertz processor. So it was, you know, packing a bit of a wallop for an open source system. Sure. And, uh, yeah, it was, uh, it also had really awesome packaging. I mean, I, I looked at the packaging. <laughs> it looks like this, this kind of leather bound sort of box that says the whiz on it. And I, I thought, I want, I kind of just want the box at this point. It was, it was really sleek. And, um, and, and I think that 2009 was, was one of those peaks of emulator use that, yeah. that we've, that we've, you know, it's, it, it's a, it's an undulating wave of, of people who don't really mind kind of pirating games. Well, in some cases, it's people who want to have access to old titles that are no longer supported. Oh, sure. Right. And and especially at this particular time point before a lot of studios had begun creating legal ports of their games for, for app stores, because right. app stores were not in 2009 what they are today right. at all. Yeah. Um, yeah. So so that was it, it was it was filling a, a piece of the market that. Yeah, the other was really was going, quite clever. Yeah, right? it was going unserved at that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For example, the, the now you can get ports of classic arcade games 
delivered to like an iPad. You know, mm-hmm. you can get their apps just for that. But at the time, that really wasn't that wasn't something you would find. So Nintendo in 2011, not content to sit back upon its haunches and cackle maniacally, releases the 3DS, which uh, I was at the E3 where the 3DS debuted. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Uh, it was, a, you know, the when it debuted, it definitely got a lot of attention because people thought this is, it's a brand new handheld from Nintendo, which automatically made it really interesting. Uh-huh. Uh, it also had this 3D capability. Uh, the 3D capability was was nifty, but also one of those things that people were skeptical about because 3D has traditionally been a really been a gimmick. Diff- it's, yeah, it's been hard to get into the consumer market, right? Uh, sure, sure. Although, you know, gl- glasses free 3D is, yeah. is always more, um, dynamic, I think, to, to the consumer market than, than glasses. Yeah. You don't, when 3D, you don't have so. to, yeah, you don't have to keep track of yet another piece of equipment. Uh, right, right. Uh, uh, although, of course, it could also play games in 2D. You didn't yeah. have to play them in 3D. It had a special camera where you could take 3D pictures, but you could only view them on the 3DS, obviously. Uh, sure. Uh, it was neat and also had some um, augmented reality uh, features to it. I didn't put that oh, right, in the notes, right. but I remember getting to play with that where you, you got like a little card uh-huh. and it had uh, a symbol from Mario. Like it might have one of the question mark blocks and you put it down on a table and you hold the camera to it and you activate the correct app on the 3DS because it wasn't just, you know, magically recognizing it. But with the right app, it would then have a little virtual character pop up on the picture of the whatever card was that you had put down. Uh, on the screen, right. right? Yeah, so on the screen, it looks like there's an actual physical character walking around on your table. Uh, if you were to actually look without using the 3DS, you'd think the person was crazy. But <laughs> um, but it was really kind of a cool little gimmick. Uh, they'd also update this in 2012 as the 3DS XL. I bet you can guess what that means. <laughs> Um, it, it didn't perform nearly as well as the company was kind of anticipating at first, and and they would they would slash the the price after it had only been on the market for a couple of months. Yeah, it was actually when I heard that I thought at first it had to be a mistake, right? Because Nintendo is Nintendo. not known for doing that. Yeah, yeah, they they usually are very aware of what they want a price to be, and and are very savvy about what what the market will handle. Um, but but. Sales did start to pick up over time, and and eventually it would it would do really pretty well. Um, yeah. Certainly much better than the Wii U, which would launch the following year. Yeah. So again, this is one of those long tail kind of approaches, and uh, and part of that I think was the fact that the games for the 3DS started to get more and more sophisticated. Sure. And mm-hmm. that helped a lot. Also, that same year in 2011. Sony comes out with a couple of things that were big news. One was the Xperia Play. I remember that at the E3 as well. People uh-huh. were calling it originally the PlayStation phone. Yeah, uh, yeah, because this was another, like like the failed Engage, a uh, uh, phone plus handheld gaming system. Yeah, it used Android OS originally, uh, two, well, not originally, 2.3, which is uh, gingerbread. It was supposed to get an upgrade to Ice Cream Sandwich, which is Android 4.0. However, Sony did some tests on the phone. So, Sony Ericsson, really, I should say, because that's the company that actually made the phone, the, uh, you know, sub-company under Sony. Uh, Sony Ericsson made the phone, tested it under Android 4.0 ice cream sandwich, and found out that it was not very stable. So they ultimately decided to keep it at 2.3, which disappointed some consumers. Uh, the same year, Sony also launched the PlayStation Vita. Which is much more successful <laughs> than the Xperia Play. Uh, yeah, flagship handheld device. It's essentially the replacement for the PlayStation Portable, the PSP. So Vita has an ARM-based 2 gigahertz processor, so it's got some serious firepower under the hood compared to other handheld devices. I know if you're, you know, 
talking about your mega awesome gaming PC at home, two gigahertz sounds like nothing. <laughs> but for a handheld device at this time, it was really pretty powerful. Uh, and it was also one of the big features that they, they touted when they launched the Vita was how it could interact with PlayStation home consoles. Uh, it had two thumbsticks for control. It had a lot of buttons, had directional pad as well, had Wi-Fi and Bluetooth capability, and you could also get a, a more expensive one that had 3G capability. Of course, you'd have to get a contract with that. All right. All right, guys, we've got a little bit more to say about the history of handheld gaming, but first, let's take another quick break. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Class is in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There is still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more, while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids how about instead of timeouts time ends time for you to start paying some bills i'm jb smooth and that was a full episode of my new podcast straightforward inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from at&t fiber get what you want without the complicated at&t fiber live like a giggillionaire available wherever you get your podcast limited availability in select areas visit att.com slash hypergig for details You can't plug in a PSP game and play it. It's not compatible in that sense. Uh, but you could download PSP games. Yes. So you could purchase PSP games for download and play them on the Vita that way. So it's a digital download as opposed to reading the optical disc, the UMD from the old PSPs. 
And the launch price was $250, although it has since dropped in price. So you can you can buy one for less than that now. That is when we started getting into um, uh, gaming tablets. Yeah, which, you know, again, like you could look at something like the iPad and you can play games on the iPad. Uh, right, but, but this it, was a more devoted device. Yes, uh, was, a couple of these were more devoted yeah, devices. Yes, definitely marketed as gaming devices as opposed to this is a general purpose tablet that can mm-hmm. also play games. Right. So, yeah, the Arcos GamePad is one of those. Another Android-based game and also open source so this one, if you were to look at one, it looks like a tablet that's had two controller like handle things fused on the side. We'll be talking about another one in a second, but it's the the Razer Edge, but that one's a little different. I'll get to that in a minute. So these look like it's actually part of the case itself. Um, and they had thumbsticks, directional pad buttons on those little the the little game controllers that are fused onto it. Um, and uh, yeah, it was a pretty powerful device and the fact that it's open source is another one of those things that developers really love because they have the chance to make stuff without having to jump through any hoops um you know like some of the other companies like nintendo for example uh, obviously they want to have a good control on quality oh sure because they learned that valuable lesson from way back in 1983 with the video game crash that Uh you don't control quality you flood the market with crappy stuff and then you suffer for it well, um, you know, the the downside to that is that if you're a little independent developer, you may not have the resources that you would need to make a game for that kind of platform. So this is a very uh, attractive alternative. Oh, sure. And also at the time, game development for mobile platforms was was in a crazy boom. Um, yeah. In fact, according to digital market analysis company app Annie, uh, global iOS app store game expenditures overtook in, in 2012 handhold console game expenditures overall. So, so the amount of money being spent on, on iOS games was way more, or, yeah. or, or maybe not way more, but, but it was, it was, it was edging out the handheld game system. That's, that's big news. And again, another one of those things where the handheld game industry has to take notice and, and say, we have to acknowledge that this oh, exists. Oh, sure. Especially after Google Play expenditures would do the same thing in early 2013. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, that's, that's, that's pretty eye opening. Also in 2013, that's when Razer released the Razer Edge, another gaming tablet that right. I got to see at a CES. Uh, this one run on, uh, Windows 8. Yeah. So or uh, runs, I guess it currently still exists. Yes, it does. Uh, it does still exist. Windows 8. So it's a Windows 8 machine. Um, and you know, again, another one of those that, that kind of, Splits off from the crowd. It's not Android or uh, its own proprietary system, and has an Intel processor. Uh, depending upon which one you get, it might be an i5 or an i7, and uh, you know is high resolution, high performance gaming tablet. It also had a uh, snap-on kind of case, and the snap-on case had handles on either side that had additional controls to it. So it kind of looks like you're holding a steering wheel that's missing the top and bottom, and the center of the steering wheel, instead of it being the horn, is the screen of the tablet, right? So you could actually use this and have a game that uses the orientation of the tablet as a control, like a driving game, and then you steer with the two control sticks that you have. Or the control sticks also had, you know, thumbsticks, buttons. Regular buttons. Yeah, uh-huh. exactly. Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, yeah, I got to play with one of these at CES. It was actually, it was funny, because it was, uh, as I recall... Razer originally would just have a representative holding the the Razer Edge and showing it off, or it was inside a case. And so that was as close as you could get. But the longer you stayed at CES, the less they seemed to care. <laughs> so if you happened to walk up on the last day and say, can I can I take a closer look at that? They would hand it to you. <laughs> yeah. like, 
wow, this is pretty <laughs> awesome. I need to remember to book my stay to come at the end of CES and not the beginning of CES. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so it was neat. Again, it was pretty high. It's like a high price uh, uh-huh. item. It's not one of those that uh, I don't think that it's necessarily done a huge amount of business. Uh, yeah, and it's gotten some flack for being gimmicky for what it is. I yeah. mean, you know, for, for being as expensive as it is, having a relatively low capacity for what it does. Right. And and again, like you were saying, I think around this time we're talking about uh, mobile games just taking off. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, the, the amounts of money that people were spending on mo- mobile games had been doubling or even quadrupling year over year. Handheld gaming was was also still climbing in sales, but by less than 10 percent year over year. Right. Um, and and by th- by this point, I, I mentioned that that in 2012, iOS game expenditures had had edged out handheld they were far and away doing the best by this Le- point leaving in, time. Them in the dust in absolutely in the dust um yeah. and w- one of the advantages i think for for mobile games here is that they seem to be way less seasonal way less like a treat or a special occasion mm. kind of purchase than handheld games tend to be yeah i mean i can i can imagine like it being a real impulse buy for one thing the entire experience is digital right you're not buying a physical uh art like a cartridge you never have to think about walking into a store or going to amazon or whatever and granted a lot of the handheld devices these days work on that same principle but uh but the smartphones just had an advantage because that's how they always had done it so uh also in 2013 that's when nvidia released the shield another one of those devices I got to see at CES, and another one I got to hold after sticking around long enough. Um, this one looks a lot like an Xbox controller that has a clamshell screen kind of welded onto it. Although you know you can open and close the screen, it's not like it's stuck in place. Uh-huh. Uh huh. A touch screen, by the way. Yeah, it is touch screen, uh, and it can run Android games. So if you ever wanted to play an Android game using a actual Xbox controller, you could totally do that. Uh, and I shouldn't say it's an Xbox controller. It just looks like one. Oh, right. Um, but it also uh, it also could run streaming games that you're streaming from a PC. Oh, cool. Yeah, right, right. So, yeah, you run like a PC game, but you want to be able to play it in the living room or you want to lay down in bed and play this game. You don't want to and you don't want to take your Alienware enormous desktop computer to bed with you because it would set the sheets on fire. So you have the NVIDIA Shield instead and just stream the content directly to your game. Uh, to your uh to your device, and so uh yeah, it was it was pretty cool. The launch price was three hundred dollars, which a lot of people kind of you know balked at. Uh, it is now down to two hundred fifty dollars, so it they they have cut the price on it. Uh, again, one of those devices that I think has its devoted followers, but it's a niche market. Sure. Uh, twenty thirteen was was a good year for downgrading. Really, uh, Nintendo released the two DS that yeah. year, which is a scaled down version of the three DS. Yeah, it's one D less. <laughs> yeah. Also, uh, doesn't like when I first heard of the two DS, I just imagined that it was a three DS that had the three D stuff removed. But in fact, the form factor itself is a little different. Instead of it being a clamshell, it looks it looks like a tablet that has. Well, Two screens. Uh, yeah. yeah. One screen mounted on top of another with a divider in between. Uh-huh. And it was marketed to, to a younger audience. I mean, it was definitely its own separate product. Yeah. Yeah. I know that there are people who question Nintendo's strategy with that. But, I mean, it was really, you know, when you look at how the Nintendo 3DS initially performed, you could understand the, the impetus behind those sort of decisions. Uh, sure. And Nintendo was also struggling pretty hard in, in this general time. Um, they, you know, the, the Wii U was basically a flop. And, yeah. uh, they, they merged their console and handheld teams that year in order to 
just give anyone a boost. <laughs> they yeah. were they were pretty desperate. Yep, yep. And also, uh, this most recent E3 was when we started seeing companies like Microsoft and Sony show off the interoperability between tablets and their their new consoles, the Xbox One and the PlayStation Four. The idea being that you could use a tablet to play a, a play along with a game that's already in the, uh, going on in some other format. Uh, yeah, to have a second screen for mini games or yeah. side information, or or you have just a totally different um, a totally different function to fulfill in a team. Right, right. So the one that I kept on seeing over and over again was let's say it's a squad based kind of game where you've got four or five people playing on an Xbox on their Xbox One with their controllers and everything. And then you have another member who's using the tablet as a tactical uh kind of interface. So they're coordinating. They're saying, okay, uh, you know, unit bravo, you need to advance two hundred feet and then turn left, you know, so they could actually kind of be extra set of eyes, which I thought was a really cool idea. I have yet to see that in action in a way that really has grabbed me. But I love that. I love the concept. Yeah, it just I, needs a really good uh, application yeah, to come along that, for that it. Yeah, it has that killer app. It's mm-hmm. got to have that killer app. So, yeah, uh, this is kind of bringing us up to today. We talked about how Nintendo's been really kind of struggling. There's been rumors about them getting into some form of uh, partnerships with phones? Uh, yeah, they're, so, so they've been operating at a loss for a solid two years in a row as of, as of when we're recording this podcast in 2014, mm-hmm. um, late February 2014 to be specific. Um, and it's, it's sounding like they're, they're considering developing like device hardware that will help link their handheld and console markets and focusing on that rather than trying to port their games and, and characters, uh, to, existing smartphone experiences. Yeah, Nintendo has a reputation for really wanting to control everything about the experience. So I can understand why they would be reluctant to, say, license their characters or to port their games over to a platform they don't have control over, which is what would happen if they created, you know, Super Mario for iOS. Uh, it doesn't stop people from trying to create clone games of it. but Certainly not, and, and emulators do exist. Yeah, but... You can understand why Nintendo says, no, we want to be able to make sure that our players have the best experience possible. Now, you can debate on whether or not, you know, how successful they are in their own right on doing that. But there's no debate on the fact that if you don't have control of the platform, you can't make that guarantee at all. Sure, sure. So that's their idea. And then also, finally, kind of wrapping this up, some of the most recent news you have this about a, a Samsung uh, uh, device, right? Uh, right. It's called the GamePad. Right Right now, I think it's only in Germany and Korea, but they're planning on rolling it out worldwide, I believe. It's a, it's a Bluetooth smartphone accessory, uh, which I think is really interesting because, yeah. because, again, going back to the fact that mobile apps are really overtaking other forms of handheld gaming, and it lets you, it lets you dock your device in, in this controller plus screen holder thing. You're, you're, you're not literally... Docking. Right, you're not connecting. You're the not controller connecting the device just to this stuff. Only via Bluetooth. Only via Bluetooth, yeah. right? Um, and and it turns your phone into a, a handheld Android-based gaming system. You, you you can use any Android-based phone or many Android-based phones anyway, as long as they have appropriate Bluetooth connectivity. They don't just have to be Samsungs, right? Um, and 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 there are plenty of other products on the market that have done similar stuff. I know that like Logitech has one for for iOSs um, or, or iPhones mm-hmm. specifically. Uh, it would have to be much larger to accommodate uh, iPad. iPad. Yeah. Um, but I, I just thought it was interesting that it was being offered by a device company, and and therefore kind of being this entry into the market that's like, hey, 
Uh, yeah. Maybe. Ignore those handheld gaming <laughs> devices over there and really just turn... Turn your phone into your new gaming device. Yeah. Yeah, and especially if that means they can get in on the peripheral side and not have the the burden of producing a full handheld system that could totally tank in the marketplace. Oh, sure, exactly. Yeah, I mean, and it's only, I think it's only like 90 bucks or, or thereabouts in, mm. in the equivalent euro. Gotcha, gotcha. So, so we might see that expand beyond. And uh, it'll be interesting to see how handheld gaming progresses from here. There are a lot of people who still predict that smartphones will essentially obliterate handheld gaming. The only the only people that will, or the only companies that remain, will be the open source ones that are catering to a very specific niche audience. So they're doing it on a much more modest basis. They're not they're not producing millions and millions of units. They might be producing maybe a hundred thousand. But uh, we'll have to see because yeah, I could I don't know I, I could see some systems kind of kind of going away, but I would be really personally sad if Nintendo didn't have a, an an active handheld on the market. Yeah, well, especially seeing as how they've struggled so much with the the home with the consoles consoles, yeah, yeah recently. So in, anyway, that is the history of the handheld electronic gaming device. Like we said, we didn't mention in everything that's out there. Certainly not. Uh, if we missed one of your favorites, here's what you can do: you can send us message and say, hey, Lauren and Jonathan, I know you didn't have time to mention X handheld gaming console, but it's really cool. And here's why. And here's a picture of me with my X gaming console. And here's a list of my favorite games for X gaming console. That's the way to do it. Don't say you guys are stupid because you didn't mention the blah, blah, blah. Because yeah, that's that's the email equivalent of um, unplugging someone's controller when they're in the middle of a really good bout of. Yeah, like, like punch out. And that wraps up that classic episode of Tech Stuff. Hope you guys enjoyed it. I do hope that I can go back and revisit this, maybe do another uh, entry into the series. Or, you know, I, I tend to do things a little differently now than I did a few years ago. So maybe I'll even like take a much deeper dive into handheld gaming. Who knows? If you guys have interest in that or if there's some other topic you would love for me to cover on Tech Stuff, reach out and let me know. The best way to do that is over on Twitter where we use the handle TechStuffHSW, and I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Picasso knows your vacation home is your best home. 
It's the place that brings family and friends together. It's where you're the best version of yourself. Picasso makes it easy to co-own a luxury vacation home in amazing locations. Listings start at 200K for one-eighth ownership. Picasso does all the work for you. Luxury furnishings, maintenance, billing, scheduling, and more. And you can resell on Picasso's Marketplace anytime, historically for a 10% gain. Visit Picasso to see thousands of listings. That's P-A-C-A-S-O dot com. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. 